0: Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, July 8th, we are studying Judges chapter 2, verses 6-23. through 23. Joshua and his generation were characterized by their faithfulness, but after their death, another generation arose that did not know the Lord and his work for Israel. And that led to the cycle that repeats itself throughout the book of Judges, the cycle that is laid out in our text for today. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sam Wurgow. Pastor Wurgow serves at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana. Pastor Wurgow, welcome back to Sharper Iron.
1: Oh, always great to be here.
0: Pastor Wurgow, as we get started this morning, give us a, a bit of context, introductory material. We're very early in the book of Judges here, just over one chapter in. What, what have we seen so far? What do we need to know from other Old Testament history that will help us for these verses today?
1: Yeah, I think looking kind of big, big picture, it's kind of nice to see uh, what the great context is when you're dealing with even the transition from the from the first five books uh, of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, into even uh, Joshua and then into Judges, where you're seeing the ongoing history of God's people going all the way back, you know, even to um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the promise God gives there of the Messiah, and continuing forward then through in Exodus his deliverance from Egypt which of course is going to be kind of referenced here a little bit too but uh God's faithfulness to his people uh his giving of of the law to his people his his claiming them as his own and they are to uh, live according to that and then uh from that you have you know of course the the wandering in the desert but then Joshua is a huge figure as we come out of the Pentateuch and then into Judges, where we specifically have the context of the conquest of the uh, of the Promised Land, and I think it's really neat to see here uh, where we see that transition. We 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 have the death of Joshua recorded again, and then um, leads right into this transition from 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 Joshua's faithfulness. Uh, to uh, Israel's then unfaithfulness, just a, a generation uh, later, some some kind of characterize this, and I think rightly, uh, you know, you see the conquest of the land in Joshua as a big, uh, a big, a big um, win, if you will, for for Israel. It's very optimistic, if you will. You see, but. You don't all see that the entire time. I mean, there's ups and there's downs, even with the conquest of the land, for sure. But but it seems to be a brighter picture than than when you just jump into judges and you see kind of the aftermath and the reason why that that takes place.
0: No, I, I think I think you're right there. That that the book of Joshua as a whole is a, a bright spot in the history of the people of Israel and the book of Judges as a whole is a a dark spot for the people of Israel. And again, that's speaking very generally. There are moments in the book of Joshua. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, yeah. no, you're right. Exactly. That that is speaking generally. You see, you see ups and downs. I mean, this is Israel's history throughout (laughs) uh, the old Testament ups and downs, faithfulness and um, uh, rebellion.
0: Right. And, and so, I mean, you know, in the book of Joshua, there, there are examples where the people are unfaithful. And in the book of Judges, there are going to be very key figures who are going to be faithful. But, but by and large, there is that contrast in the two books as a whole. Here in, in the text that we've got for today is one of those spots where there's a, a bit of overlap, where the text isn't going to be perfectly chronological as, as sometimes we expect it to be. And so the author of the book of Judges, who, who's maybe Samuel, we've, we've said in previous episodes, is is going to go back a bit. He's, he's going to rewind the story to tell us a little bit about Joshua and his generation in order to make that contrast with the generation that comes after Joshua and then the generations that we will encounter throughout the book of Judges. So so that's kind of where we are here in the book of Judges. Any more introductory material, Pastor Workout, before we jump into this text today?
1: Yeah, I think it's kind of important to see where Israel was at that time. We'll kind of hit on that a little bit more, but at the end of the book of Joshua in, tw- in chapter 24, you do have kind of that renewal of the covenant. This happens again and again and again throughout the Old Testament books where where, uh, and this is an important point because the people have, you know, made this. This uh, they're entering into the land; it's been um, divvied up, if you will. They they have their their inheritance, their portion, uh, and then the people. Uh, uh, there's this renewal of the covenant, and the people answer: "Far be it from us that we would forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery." and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us and all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. I think that kind of helps to summarize the broad picture of Joshua and then kind of the attitude, if you will, or the confession uh, of those uh, contemporaries of Joshua, uh, which kind of helps them to, to see that by way of contrast as we transition into the time of the
0: Judges. Let's go ahead then and jump into the text for today. We're in Judges chapter 2 this morning, beginning at verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. I'm going to pause there, Pastor Wargau, just for the the sake of breaking up a a longer section of, of text. So here we get that bit of overlap between the book of Judges from some of what we've read already, and particularly the end of the book of Joshua, and indeed the, the whole book of Joshua, is, is, there's a bit of a summary here. And as, as we've been saying, this is really uh, characterized, this time of Joshua is characterized as a time of faithfulness. What, what are we seeing here in this summary of the life of Joshua and his, his service for the people of Israel?
1: Yeah, what you see here again, I think you kind of have a great kind of um, after this dismissal of the people that they they go to take possession of the land. They actually get the land uh, that had been promised to them, uh, and and by which God had or God had worked through Joshua to deliver on His promise. Joshua, of course, you know, we kind of see as the uh, uh, type of Christ, and uh, the promised land often is associated with for a type of the. Um, of 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 the church or the of of uh, the promises of God delivered to us now uh, and then crossing the Jordan of course is a is a sense of of baptism as well uh, so so you have all that Old Testament imagery but it brings you to to the actual event that's taking place here where the people are going to actually go and to take possession of this land uh, and as this is all characterized as they do this that there is Joshua and then all the uh, elders who will outlive Joshua. So again, it gives you this picture of this generation of people uh, after Joshua's death. That there is this time of a faithfulness that surrounds that 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 takes place afterwards um, after they take possession of the land, and then uh, then you'll see um, you'll see the people for forgetting. And then that also leading to uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the wrong faith then also leads to uh, the, the, the wrong deeds or the sinful deeds of the people and going after other gods. But for now here, it is really important to say that, that um, this generation uh, was, was faithful and it's, this generation's characterized by the ones who had seen the great work of the Lord. I think that's pretty significant that they had witnessed these good times. They had seen uh, the Lord conquer. They had seen, they, they had uh, been heirs of this, that they had received the promised land. Uh, and so they're, they're ones who, who saw it for themselves, if you will. But uh, at the same time, then uh, their, their next generation, those who, who hadn't been part of the conquest in that way, uh, are the ones then that that fall off
0: yeah so I mean a, a couple of a couple of thoughts one is that is Joshua and his generation this is a, a faithful generation by and large and they had seen these works of the Lord themselves they they had seen the the conquest they had seen what Joshua had done some of some of them would have seen, Moses they would have been young with with Moses coming out of the wilderness but but some of them would have seen that and some of the the deeds that 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 had been done there some of some of that generation probably ate manna in the wilderness it's it's very possible that some of some of them who have participated in that conquest right because these are the the people who were under 20 at the time of Israel's great rebellion they they wander for 40 years and then they so that that generation dies. So, so we've got this one generation who has seen all that the Lord has done, and so their their faithfulness makes sense in that they've seen it, and and yet it was it should never be about what they've seen, but rather what they've heard. That they trust the Lord's word. I guess as, as you were talking there, Pastor Workout, just it brought to mind for me the, the matter of where Jesus. After his resurrection, appears to Thomas, and and he says, "Have you seen, or you have seen me, and so you've believed?" He says, "Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed." So that the the generations after Joshua, well, how is it that they were going to believe if they hadn't seen? Well, it it would have been through their hearing, and and it seems from this account that we get here in chapter two, that, that something went wrong in their hearing. Verse 10 talks about how this next generation arises, and they didn't know the Lord, and they didn't know the work that he'd done for Israel. Rather tragic verse.
1: Right. It certainly is. And it does show us, really, That's an excellent point that you make about the idea that it's not about uh, the seeing necessarily, but uh, it's about the hearing, and it's about the, the, the hearing of the mighty deeds of the Lord. And this is actually... What God intended even from the beginning. This is why He gives His law. This is why He 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 makes His covenant with His people, and then He also gives the um, the point that these things should be uh, passed on. Uh, in particular, I'm thinking like Deuteronomy six uh, four through nine you you have you know you have the great Shema, the great confession of God's people in the Old Testament. Hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Okay, we know that very well. And and then he goes on to say, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And And why is that the case? Because we, God knows how, how fickle and how failing man can be in regards to this and how quickly uh, we can forget. Uh, So if we don't see these mighty works of God, don't witness them firsthand. Our sinful hearts are ones that will turn away from this. Yet God continues to give his word with that direction uh, to hear it, to believe it, and to teach it, to teach it specifically to, to your children. Uh, a great, great point about bringing up uh, Thomas and Jesus because, I mean, this is, this is the way that the Christian faith is passed on from, from one generation to the next. I mean, we think we have a proper, uh, proper understanding of tradition or this handing over and a proper understanding of, of catechesis and, 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 and teaching uh, within our church body that, that what we have uh, received, we pass on. That is the very words and teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Holy Scripture, but then taught to another generation, instilled in another generation, uh, and and so that we don't forget, so that the next generation will continue to um, hear God's word, to believe it, to be raised up in that, uh, and then also to bear good fruit in godly living. And here, as we see kind of this overview of what takes place in Judges, the, the opposite takes place. The people forget they, they, they don't uh, they forget who God is. Uh, they don't love or trust in Him any longer, and then they go after other gods.
0: Hmm. The verse 10 it is just is very striking that and as I, I think I, I said it, you know, something went wrong with the hearing. And, and it strikes me that there's there's two things that could have gone wrong with the hearing. One is that the hearing never took place. So that would that would place the fault then at the generation that came before, that the generation that came before failed to pass the the good news of what God had done onto the next generation. That's one way that the hearing could have failed. The other way that the hearing could have failed is of course in the in the hearer in that the the generation heard and didn't care. And I think I mean this this verse, I know when I've read this verse in the past, I, I tend to place the blame upon the generation that that should have done the telling. You know, you, you come to verse 10, and, and this generation arises who didn't know the Lord, didn't know the work that he had done for Israel, and, and my automatic assumption is that, well, they must not have been told, and so that's why they didn't know. Therefore, it, somehow the, the fault is with that generation, and certainly that might have been the case. But but there's also a recognition from elsewhere in the scriptures that that people do hear the work that the Lord has done and and who He is, and they will reject it. and And which one happens here, I, I don't know. I think we can probably spend a little bit of time reflecting on both of those, Pastor Wergau. But but either way, the the result is is tragic. So I mean, I, I think we yeah I I think if if you're up for it, let's let's reflect on both of those. First, the the case where. One generation fails to tell of the good news of what God has done to the coming generation. Uh, let, let's reflect on that one first, and then a little bit on the the one where the hearers simply reject it.
1: Right, I think that's a great that's a great point. I mean, it it, it is given. You know, the mandate is given. It, it, it's 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 a good and godly thing for fathers to teach their children. Uh, for mothers to teach their children for, for, for to, to pass this on. And yet where we've been given that duty to raise up our children in the fear of the Lord, um, but both then and now God entrusts that to us. And we understand our own sinful fallenness where we fail at that. Now you can fail at that, or you can completely just disregard that. And I think both kind of happen. Nobody uh, our Lord is the only perfect catechist and the perfect teacher, uh, but he still in his grace and mercy uses uses us to do that very thing. Uh, and we do it to the, to the best of our ability. Nobody's perfect in it, uh, but we do it together. And I think that's important for us to understand, uh, maybe to emphasize here too, it's not simply that in, in our time, especially, it's not simply the pastor's job to teach the children. Uh, to teach the next generation, but it primarily takes place in the home through the catechesis of of, of uh, parents to their children. And that's the best place for it. And then also to be instilled through, through the teaching of the church and such. Now, again, there are generations, there are people who drop the ball on that contemporarily, just as it takes place uh, in the past. Uh, and if the message isn't being instilled, it's not going to be received if you will, <laughs> you know if it's not being passed on, uh, that words not being taught and preached uh, and given to that next generation, uh, it can easily slip and, and we can lose we can lose sight of it. I do like that second point that you do bring up because my mind is like yours, it automatically goes to this idea, well the previous generation failed. However, I think it is evident in uh, the scriptures and in, in church history, uh, as well as even contemporary, we can see it in our own lives, where even though that word is diligently taught and is um, passed on to another generation where we talk about God and we talk about Christ and we talk about his love for us, uh, our hearts can be so hardened that that word is is rejected. Um, I think in this regard of Perhaps the parable of the sower and the seed. Right, even though that seed is sown, the word is preached, the word is taught, mm-hmm. the heart uh, can can uh, it might be such that the soil does that the root that the seed does not take root in that soil, and that it's snatched away by Satan.
0: Right, and and the the parable of the sower is exactly. Is, is exactly where where my mind went too as I was reflecting on this, and and it, and maybe that maybe it's because we're pastors that we we tend to to think in terms of the passing on of the faith, and and to look at it from that side, and and rightly so that we would emphasize this need for each and every parent to pass the word of God on to their children and to be diligent about it. As diligent as we are with our children's education, and rightly so, as diligent as we are sometimes in our children's extracurricular activities, how much more ought we to be diligent in our giving of the Word of God to our children? And so from that direction, this is this is a huge emphasis in the Scriptures, and, and you're exactly right to, to say that it, it starts at home, it starts with fathers and mothers giving this gift to to their children. This is this is so important. And and no parent dare take it lightly or neglect it. That's not to say that we'll do it perfectly, but but simply to to be about that, to give the word of God to your to your children. And very practically, you know, the the catechism. And I know, I mean that sounds like coming from a pastor. i was like, oh, of course he's going to say the catechism. But but really as a as a as a father I say that too. Those simple words of the 10 commandments, the creed the Lord's prayer, words that I already know as a Christian, just to give those to my children is, is such a wonderful gift. And so to be about that is, is just such a fantastic thing. And and yet to also recognize that I mean Jesus, Jesus, as you said, is is the perfect catechist. And 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 still Judas betrayed him. And, and that was not the fault of our Lord or the fault of the Lord's teaching or of the Word. It, it was the fault of, of Judas. And, and, and any number of, of people who have been Christians and have fallen away, or any number of people who have heard the Word of God, and, and that Word did not take root for whatever reason, given in the, in the parable of the sower. Maybe it was snatched away by Satan initially, or it did begin to take root and then it was choked or by the, by the weeds, or, or it was rocky soil and it just didn't grow and mature. That, that, that is not the fault of the word, that is the fault of the hearer. And I think it, it's, it's just something that, uh, I, I guess I, I continue to think about it from the role of the giving of the faith, particularly as a pastor and a father, that it's an encouragement for me to do this, but at the same time, to to recognize that at the end, it does not depend on me, it depends on the Lord. And of course, that's a good place for it to, to rest, because his word is the is what has the power to, to bring to faith and to keep in faith.
1: Yeah, exactly. We're given to do just what our Lord bids us to do and nothing, nothing more and nothing less, if you will. Uh, We, we, we speak the word, we, we, we teach our children uh, and we, and we pray for our children and we know that God's will is done. And um, we, we don't delve into the reason why it is rejected, you know, uh, why other than to, to point out that that sinful man will reject this, but but why one generation and not another, uh, if the word is there and is being preached and is being given, uh, that's not for us to determine why God has worked such in the course of history. Uh, but we do know that He has promised for His elect that that word will take root and that it will grow, uh, and that uh, the people will be faithful because of that. Will will be faithful uh, in that word and in that and in that truth. Uh, and so again, like I think you see this with, with Israel, we're going to talk. I think here a little bit about the this the cycle, uh, kind of the four parts, if you will, of the cycle of history throughout Judges, and I think you see it in Kings too, with with uh, with um, faithfulness, then unbelief, then punishment, and then redemption uh, or rescue. So, uh, but but I, it, it's it's kind of a cycle of history, even uh, to a lesser extent past Israel and in, even into the church. So
0: Right. And, and with, that, with that cycle, which, which we'll pick up on the other side of the break here, just to, uh, I think seeing that cycle combined with what we've been talking about is a reminder for the people within whatever generation to be active in their own hearing of the Word. I mean, it, it would be easy for me as a pastor or as a father to think, okay, I'm, I'm going to be busy giving this Word to my children, but I also need to be active in the hearing of the Word myself lest i fall into that that kind of cycle or or fall into the the unbelief and and then god forbid stay there right i mean i need to keep hearing the word of god as a part of whatever generation you know i mean talking about joshua's generation and then the judges generations that follow it it's not that there was something sort of inherently right or good about that joshua generation the Lord. This was all the Lord's doing, I guess this is the point that I, I want to drive home, is that in their hearing of the word, the Lord continued to keep them in the faith, to keep them faithful.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, that's what it does boil down to. This isn't, we, we keep it monergistic, right? I mean, it's God's work for them, and he is the one working that mm. in them. Uh, we also, great point, we need to always be mindful of the danger for pastors, for people, for 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 young, for old alike, of how quickly and easily this can be snatched and taken away from us. So to remain diligent, then, just as God directed his people in Deuteronomy 6, you know, uh, teach it diligently to your children, write it on your doorpost, put it on the frontlets between your eyes, and so forth, because God's word works. It's what's been given to us. and The devil does that.
0: That's right. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, looking at Judges chapter 2. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that for over 40 years, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries with low-cost loans and resources? This is Rahema Kavuga, Synod Relations Manager of Lutheran Church Extension Fund. Because of faithful investors like you, we've been able to help church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations. To learn how you can get involved, call 800-843-8233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, July 8th, and we are looking at Judges chapter 2 verses 6 through 23. Our guest this morning is Pastor Sam Wergau. He serves at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana. Pastor Wergau, prior to the break, we left off at verse 10. So let's pick up the text again, Judges chapter 2 verse 11 and following. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods, from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. All right, we'll pause there. So, Pastor Wurgo, this is where we, we get into this cycle, the description of the cycle that is evident throughout the book of Judges. We will encounter it. It's four parts. And in this part, we encounter the first two parts of that cycle. It starts with, as the text says in verse 11, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And and we should notice that this evil that they do in the sight of the Lord is is very particular. It's not just that they were bad people, they were being mean to their neighbors— but the evil that is in the sight of the Lord is following after other gods, and the text is very vivid in the way that it describes this worshiping of other gods. Take us into this first part of the cycle.
1: Yeah, uh, and I think even that first part of the cycle, when you start with 11, that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and then we'll see that laid out what this is, what this evil looks like. But that even itself stems from what was what that, that verse 10, right? That this was because... They this generation arose that did not know the Lord or the work that he had done. And not simply just not knowing, like they were ignorant of it, but their hearts, th- this is a matter of, of faith, right? They did not know the Lord. They had this false belief, uh, this false trust, which then led them to these, to these evil, to these evil deeds, right? And so, you know, like our Lord says, out of the heart comes forth all of these. And everything kind of boils back, it goes back to the first commandment, right? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. We should have no other gods, uh, which is a matter of faith. And then when we have that wrong faith directed at a wrong thing for the people of Israel, then it is directed forgetting the Lord, not having trust in him who actually did deliver them and had brought them into the land, uh, uh, out of the land of Egypt and then into the promised land. Then they go after an actual action. This is; these are evil deeds that are done, and they're done in the sight of the Lord, right? They're done. Uh, god's not ignorant to this; He knows what is going on, and we'll see then uh, the punishment that comes then from this. But this is concrete. You're right that they actually abandon the Lord, uh, and they go after these false gods. I, I love how. Uh, uh, the author to judges I think it's Samuel too but uh, does talk about this that they that they abandoned the Lord the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Here's just a little reminder, even though they have forgotten about this God and gone after other gods does not negate the fact that he is the one true God who had you know conquered over all those false gods of Egypt over um, powerful Pharaoh and brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. But they had forgotten that and they hadn't trusted in that God. And so they go after these other false gods. And these are the gods that are from the people around them. And they bow down to these gods. So this is physical, actual worshiping, uh, which incorporates their body and their heart, their heart and their body to do these kind of things. But it's significant that these are the gods of the people who were around them. Uh, the, the Canaanite gods of Baals, the Baals and the Ashtoreth, uh these false gods that were the primary gods of uh, the Canaanites, which is why precisely in Joshua, God was uh, commanded that these things be driven out and not remain in the land because they would serve then as a temptation when the people would forget to turn to these, to these false gods. Uh, of course, the people failed at that. Uh, which then leaves them wide open to to embrace that after and to do that evil in the sight of the Lord after they have failed to trust in God, forgotten about God and his his faithfulness and his work towards them.
0: So, Pastor Wergau then there's there's the doing of the evil, and I can't did you did you really hit? On, there's there's multiple ways that it's described here in the text. One is that they abandoned the Lord. And, and, and I, I talked a little about this with one of our other previous guests, that the Lord remains with his people, but the people leave him, they abandon him, they go after other gods, they even bow down to them. The language that is used to describe idolatry is very vivid.
1: Mm-hmm. It is very vivid. And we'll see actually here a, a little bit later in 17, uh, the language of, of whoring after other gods we can actually hit on that now. I think it'd be perfectly fine because this is all kind of incul- different ways of talking about the same thing, especially because it talks about it's this these relationship words, God with his people, and then the people's um, uh, leaving of that relationship, if you will, in different ways that they go out. But yeah, the, the idea of them abandoning God, I mean, it's the idea that God is with him, that God is who God is, but they choose then to reject that to reject who he is and to leave him, right? He doesn't abandon them. They abandon him into false belief, through false belief and then to other sins, contrary to to, to the word and the commandment that he had given to them. Uh, but so too, do you have this idea of bowing down? I mean, uh, th- this is significant because I think we over-spiritualize things uh, in the New Testament and in our modern time, especially, but but you do have this in the Old Testament where your your worship, I mean, it starts with the heart but it does show itself in in how you conduct yourself even with your body right and so I mean in the New Testament you have this where Jesus is worship people bow down before Jesus it's something that incorporate because you're going to do something with your body you bow down uh, but we worship with our bodies even even nowadays right sitting standing kneeling folding our hands our bodies are outward expression of our of our um, of our uh, uh, worship of our hearts and our minds and our spirit but but it does take place in the body as well but but, but with their bodies then they also the, the Israelites here go after these other gods and actually bow down to them and are actually uh giving what belongs to God worship praise and honor uh faith and trust uh they're giving it to these to these false gods that hadn't done anything who actually don't exist in that way. Uh, but they had gone after this this falsehood. And then again, in verse 17, which we'll get to here, it talks about them whoring after other gods, which is another way that the Old Testament talks about this kind of uh, failure to, to these evil acts that take place. And, and, and this paints that very vivid uh, relationship of God with his people as being one of uh, of marriage, right? God was married to his people Israel. He had taken them Uh, as his own, Uh, even as we confess that, you know, marriage is a picture of of Christ and his church, that Christ has laid down his life, and husbands ought to do the same for their wives, just as Christ did it for his bride, the church, that he would keep her, sanctify her, and keep her. Um, So then it shows you just how crass that is, when Israel is an adulterer, and they go after uh, the one who had been—they go away from the one who had been faithful to them, and they go after these these other these false gods and actually use this language of, of of whoring.
0: So that's the that's the first part of this cycle. The people of Israel do evil in the sight of the Lord. They they follow after false gods, gods that aren't even real. These idols. They forsake their true husband, and and commit adultery with an idol. That's the first part of the cycle. Now. The second part of the cycle is is found starting in verse 14 where it talks about the anger of the Lord is kindled against Israel and he gives them over to plunderers who plundered them. The, in other words, after the people forsake the Lord and start worshipping false gods, the Lord says, "Okay, let's let's see what it looks like when you worship a false god." And and what does it look like? It looks like oppression, it looks like plundering, it looks bl- like being ruled by an enemy. Now, this part of the cycle, I think of, of all of them, is perhaps the most uncomfortable for us because we don't often think about the Lord's punishments for our sin. At least, not in this life. We often think about His eternal punishments, but we do confess to the Lord that we deserve both His eternal and His temporal. Punishment, his punishment in this life, and and that's what we're seeing a picture of. It's a it's a bit uncomfortable, I think, but it's something that's definitely in this cycle and something we need to to talk about a little bit here, Pastor Workout.
1: Yeah, exactly. You're right. Uh, it, not only eternal punishment, but temporary punishment is something we confess that we deserve because of our sins, and that we actually do in this life to a certain extent receive because of our sins. But, but I mean, God says so much when He gives the commandments in Exodus 20. He says, uh. And specifically, when he's talking about you shall have no other gods, he says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Oh, there we got Israel doing that, right? Uh, For I, the Lord, your God, and this is very um, familiar probably to a lot of our ears. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, uh, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments, right? This is what we often put in the catechism as the close of the commandments. What does God say about all these commandments? Uh, and, and he says that he is a, a jealous God, that he's not going to, to, to share us. And he promises uh, or he threatens uh, these punishments. Um, uh, Luther's explanation in the small catechism is, it really does help to, to, to show us what's going on here. In kind of the second part of the cycle, God threatens to punish all who break these commandments. And we're not simply talking about eternal punishment um, uh, of his receiving his wrath in eternity. uh, But we're talking about temporal punishment uh, that God shows to his people where they uh, uh, endure the consequences of their sins. Uh, so so uh, to complete what Luther says here at the, uh, the explanation of this, therefore, we should fear his wrath and not do anything against them, against his commandments. But he promises grace and every blessing to those who keep these commandments. Therefore, we should also love and trust in him and gladly do what he's commands. So these commandments have teeth uh, and God does what he says he's going to do, even even here in time. Because we we often think again this as the future judgment, but it does take place for for Israel. And I'd say even although we don't we don't preach it this way, we should be very cautious about calling out certain things as God's punishment for certain sins. Contemporarily, we can talk a little bit more about that if you want to. But uh, but here we do have a clear word of God. I like how you said it. You want to go after these gods, God says, I'll show you what that looks like. And he punishes. And he punishes by means. And I think that's important to understand. This isn't like God raining down lightning like Zeus. But he does, because he is over all things, he does allow then, uh, being provoked to anger, um, because the people had abandoned them, he gives them over uh, to plunderers who plunder them and to their enemies so that they... Where we saw in Joshua them them uh, conquering by the strength of the Lord, here we see because they had abandoned that strength of the Lord, their enemies doing exactly the opposite, and and they're not able to conquer, but they're not able to withstand their enemies. Uh,
0: just just briefly concerning this m- matter of of how we approach this today, I, I think you're exactly right that we need to take great care as to how we talk about this when it comes to, is this a punishment for a particular sin? And the reason we need to take great care is we do not have a specific word of God concerning that today, like we have here in Judges chapter 2. I I think the the best approach is found what Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 13, where, where he's approached by some with examples of of particular suffering, and, and Jesus says, look, do you, do you think that they were worse sinners because they suffered in this way? And he says, no, but I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And then he gives his own example, so that, that whenever we see suffering in this world, whenever we experience some sort of of consequence because we live in a sinful world, we don't necessarily want to say, this is happening because I committed this particular sin, but we should take it as an opportunity to repent, that we recognize that such such things happening to us, that's what we deserve as sinners, and and it should drive us to repentance in that general way, if nothing else. Does that make sense, Pastor Wargo?
1: That makes perfect sense. Yeah, I was going to turn to that Luke 13 passage, but you got it, and that's, that's exactly right, because I think that does hit on how we approach um, the suffering that we have because I mean, we rightly confess God is in control right and he is ordering all things according to his good and gracious will sometimes we don't understand that but uh, we do know that when bad things happen when there's tragedy when there's strife both you know nationwide or in our communities or or even in our personal lives that bring us down that that kind of tear us down uh, when our enemies are prevailing against me against us it's not like an unfair thing because we are all poor miserable sinners but it is our opportunity to as jesus said unless you too repent uh you all likewise perish it's us to realize the gravity and the depth of our sins and of this sinful fallen world and then at the same time to not trust in ourselves but to turn from our sins and to turn to Christ, and, and as we'll see here as we get into the, the next part here, to turn to the Lord in repentance and to call upon him to deliver us. And I think ultimately what we do see there, especially for us contemporarily, is that when we encounter the effects of a sinful fallen world, it is a time for us to rely upon the steadfast love and mercies of God. Not in ourselves, but in what he has accomplished for us, ultimately in the death and resurrection of Christ, where we find the answer to all the problems of evil in this world, and to even the problem of evil in our own life, and that God doesn't ultimately hold our sins against us and that he has promised to be faithful to us and to deliver us, which then you see in Israel's history here with the cycle of the judges. uh, That's precisely what what takes place next.
0: Let's keep reading in the text then. We are in Judges chapter 2 now, picking up at verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people has transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. That's the remainder of the text in Judges chapter 2, that was verses 16 through 23. So Pastor workout here we see the, the last two parts of the cycle, and, and really this, this matter of being in distress from verse 15 comes as a part of that. But the last two parts then, after the Lord sends uh, this punishment upon his people, they cry out in repentance, and then the Lord sends a judge, a rescuer, a deliverer. And so this is where we actually, for the first time in the book of Judges, meet the concept of a judge. And and this is worth a, a bit of time to, to look at, because the word judge in English carries with it a certain judicial courtroom connotation, which is not absent from the word that we've got here, uh, but there's more to it than that.
1: Right, exactly. Uh, I think if you talk about like the branches of government, perhaps uh, in in our American system, you know we have the the, the judicial, uh, but we see the judges in the Old Testament as being executive too, if you will. They had they had they had power, they had deliverance, that they had they had enforcement, if you will, uh, of the uh, of the uh, of law of God. Uh, so yeah, and then we we I, we can't contemporarily think of judge without thinking of a courtroom. Uh, but we and I don't think it's completely absent from the judges as they ruled, but I think you know we understand these judges as uh, deliverers as well, but also as uh, rulers in a certain sense too. Uh, so the the Hebrew word is shofet, uh, and it is derived from the same root word of mishpat, which is the the term for um, justice or judgment. Uh, and and so we do have this sense that this is um, uh, this these these are rulers, uh, who deliver the people. God uses them to deliver the people, and then to um to to uh, deliver and to save, and then also to 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 rule over to govern the people. Perhaps this is a good way to talk about it. Uh, so so that is that's included with it because you do have then this idea that that once that per, that judge died and was no longer ruling the people according to God's word. Um, they turn right back around and the history repeats itself, if you will. Uh, and, and so, um, but I think it's really important that, that judges points out this idea that, that whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. So, so we go back to this idea that this is God working through means in the Old Testament, specific means of raising up these judges in order to deliver the people who had, we would say, they were in great distress. They had, they had been brought low uh, by the enemies that surrounded them as due consequence of their sin. And they have uh, repented. They have called upon the Lord and the Lord has delivered them through the judges. So these this is the means by which God uh, uh, rescues and, and, and rescues His people from the hand of their uh, of the enemy, uh, and how um, the Lord continues to to not only rescue but to rule and to to be with His people. Uh, they're saved from the hands of the enemies, and the and then the judges uh, will will uh, the Lord will work through the judges to um, be with His people. But again, the importance of it. It's not about the, the earthly figure of authority, whether it's deliverance or governance or whatnot, but it is about the Lord who is exercising his work through the judges.
0: Right. This is this is the Lord with his people to save through these means. Very very key that he's doing it through means. The last thing that really stands out about this text, Pastor Orgo, is there at the end where the Lord's anger leads him to purposely now no longer drive out these nations. And and this, he says, is his testing of the people of Israel. We've got about three minutes here left on the morning to, to talk about this portion of the text.
1: Oh, it's a pretty big subject, but I think we can boil it down to three minutes. Yeah, why does God test? And I think this is important for us to kind of distinguish between God <laughs> testing and God tempting. Why does he go about this? Uh You're right. I mean, the people had failed in not doing it initially, and now this is one of those senses where god because of all of this is going to allow this to happen to leave this to leave these nations here in order to test his people we, we rightly say like james 1 13, we know it from the catechism too when we say uh the explanation to uh, lead us not into temptation that god tempts no one uh, so we rightly distinguish tempting from from testing because we know that god's desire is that all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth he doesn't want to tempt anyone into unbelief and to death not how God operates, but he does so, he doesn't tempt away from the faith. But the testing actually for God's people then and for us now, even we could say, is uh, with the trials and the tribulations or leaving that, 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 um, that's uh, those nations there is in order actually, in fact, to test the people to draw them to him through repentance and faith. This is similar to Deuteronomy 8.3. Uh, where he says, he humbled you, allowed you to hunger and fed fed you with manna, so which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So the idea is God allows such tempting, or God allows such evil to take place and uses such evil for his good purposes, the bigger picture kind of, of drawing them to him. This takes place again in that cycle of, of, um, Israel's history, but even now, God is always working things together for good for those who are called by his name. And again, ultimately, God's faithfulness uh, is seen in Christ and uh, what Christ has accomplished as uh, the kind of fulfillment of the judges, the fulfillment of Israel's history for us, that even though God would allow testing for us, it is uh, God would test us. It is always for the sake of strengthening our faith and drawing us closer to Him.
0: Pastor Sam Wergau is the pastor at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana, helping us this morning with Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 23. Pastor Wergau, thanks for being our guest this morning. Oh, thank you. The cycle of the book of Judges is predictable. The people rebel against the Lord. He sends punishment against them. That brings them to repentance. Thanks be to God for his grace in bringing his people to repentance. And in that repentance, the Lord rescues his people. He does it through means. He sends a judge. He sends one to be their savior, to rescue them from their enemies, just as he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to rescue us from our enemies today. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.